The Will Cain Show podcast is presented by the Capital One Saver Card. Earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment, 2% at grocery stores, and 1% on all of their purchases. The Ryan Rossillo Show podcast. Weird show. going to tell you that right now we can already get the mood. The whole day was turned upside down. I came in early, oh, yeah. hung out here. We had to tape an interview. I had to tape some other things. You've been back and forth on first take. I haven't eaten yet. I was in sweatpants most of the day at work. You like, were sweating. You weren't just in sweatpants during our first interview. You were sweating. If you have an issue, if there's anything that you smell in the studio, feel free to alert me of it. I'm not naturally a smelly guy, but I did use some of those shower wipes because I had to run over here, so I couldn't do a full post-workout shower. I'm not familiar with shower wipes. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, is it really a shower in a bag? Probably not the same effectiveness, but I feel pretty good right now. <laughs> so you let me like know. You smell like sulfur. <laughs> uh, I don't think I smell like sulfur today, but very good reference. Time for Straight Talk with Will Kane, the Rosillo Show on ESPN Radio, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Best phones, best networks, no contracts. Here is the deal with today's show. We have Brian Winhorse. We have Jay Billis, Lewis Riddick, and maybe even some surprise guests. I'm considering making up some stuff. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough time. It may not be enough time. We want to talk about whether or not I'd be a good spy or if Will Kane would make it into special forces. Maybe we'll have time for that a little bit later. We also want to know if fashion is cyclical. What are you attracted to? Medieval times. These are all pre-show conversations that we've had. But we start with <laughs> not Cam Newton. We'll get to that with his dominant performance on Monday night. But LeBron James and the Cavs at the Knicks. And the Knicks were up. They were up big in this game. They lose. Corver goes off in the fourth quarter. But the only thing everybody wants to talk about is the altercation in the first quarter where LeBron makes the bucket. Nick Lakina's trying to get the ball to go inbound it. He kind of bumps into LeBron and then bumps LeBron again. LeBron's not really moving. And then Nick Lakina's definitely trying to bump him. Then they exchange words. And Ennis Canner comes over. And then he starts talking to him. And then it turns into this whole deal after the fact. LeBron gets the win, hit a huge bucket against Przingis, so he feels good about himself. But it started adding up these things where I'm just going, what if Canner and him fought? What if they fought? Oh, yeah? I know that's never going to happen, but who would you take? Oh, man. We'll take LeBron in a heartbeat. Over Canner. And I know so everything. So you're acting like this I'm is silly. Talk, no, what are you talking about? It's, yeah, you, the way you answer that, it's like I'm silly to even suggest that there's a, a, a debate here. Well, if you're asking me how the actual fight would go down, have you seen LeBron's deltoids? Oh, yeah. He's a big dude. Yeah. I'm taking LeBron in the first round by, by, by KO. Hmm. I had a lot of people last night as this was going back and forth going, well, Canner spent time in a Turkish prison. Uh, hey. well, he was detained. I don't know that it was like spy game or some Nat Geo deal where you get caught up in a heroin ring. And next thing you know, you're in some weird prison in the mountains, you know, eating paste for a year. Hey, let me tell you something. First of all. Paste is underrated. Ennis, I'm not questioning his toughness when I say LeBron wins the fight. I'm not questioning his, you know, ability to withstand punishment or pain or whether or not he should be standing up to LeBron. I'm just saying I'm taking LeBron in the fight. Okay, so Canner called out LeBron after the fact. Here's one cut for you. Of course, it was tough. Uh, we were up by 20-something, I think. I think we just gave up 40-something points in the fourth quarter. But I think if you look at it, uh, we we fight really hard. We play with a lot of energy. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing. This team is really special. And you ain't coming to my house playing that water bottle flip game again. 
You know what I mean? Uh, I don't care who you are, king, what, what do you call yourself, king, queen, princess, whatever you are. You know what? We're going to fight. And, and, and nobody out there going to punk us. Okay. All right. Now, All right. Now, now king, ask me queen, a different princess. question. Don't ask me who's going to win the fight. Ask me a different question. You want me to tell you? No, I think, I think the, the question is, do you take Canner's side in this altercation? In a first-round KO. I mean, I am 100% on Canner's side. And I don't know how any reasonable human being can end up on LeBron James's side. I mean, I don't, don't do this LeBron hater, Team LeBron filter you view things through. LeBron threw... This, <laughs> these, are, these are not... A, these, Did these, you just accuse me of something? No. LeBron, I don't think so. LeBron threw Nilakina under the bus. 100%. With the Dennis Smith conversation from this yes, weekend. Yes, right. in an attempt to take a shot at Phil Jackson, mm-hmm. he praised Dennis Smith and threw Nilakina under the bus, right? Okay. He says Nick should have Didn't taken... Didn't mean to, but it was, oh, a way to, it was a way to... Look, yes, he was he was collateral damage in the conversation, but it wasn't a shot directed solely at Nilakina. It's him trying to take a shot at Phil Jackson. Okay, okay. collateral damage, yeah, fine. right. But he's part of it. Okay, that's fine. And so now Nilakina has to stand up, right? Mm-hmm. Although, weirdly, it's LeBron that's punking Nilakina on the court. He's standing in the way, lording over Nilakina. Nilakina's got to be a man. He's got to have some pride. Like, get off me. Push, push, push. And then what happens when LeBron steps to him? Here comes Nilakina's teammate in his canter to have his back. I applaud everybody on the Knicks side in this deal. Here's LeBron answering to that king, queen, princess line. Kind of said, and I'm going to quote it. You can call yourself King Queen. Yeah, I know. I heard that. That's corny. Oh my God! You, you call, what? What is it? Say it again. You can call yourself King Queen Princess. You're not gonna pop Well, I'm the king. My wife is the queen, and my daughter is the princess. So we got all three covered. Top rope. Saruti, you have a theory. What? Per- oh, mic issues here. What percentage do you think of N- of NBA players think LeBron's like corny and fake and don't really respect him? Because I think it's kind of high. What, give me a number. What's high? More than 50? Close to 50? That just think Half this guy's kind of a cornball? Kendrick Perkins called him out on that early. Yeah, I think a lot of guys. Because like last night, I mean, going at a rookie, man, like you're LeBron James. What are you doing? I definitely think he started the thing with Neil Aquino. So Will and I are on the same page with that one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's clear. 50% seems high. He's so good and... For the most part, he's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. You know, I think people actually like him. Yes, can some of the social media stuff be a little corny? Fine. You know what I mean? I mean, but it's every single day we're dissecting everything he does. But I thought the Neil Aquina thing was weird because it's like, no, dude, you're initiating this stuff. And then you get to call the shots every time to say, okay, we're over this. Like, don't even, don't even embarrass me by even suggesting that I should even answer to these things. Well, wait a minute. You did the exact same thing on the Phil should have taken Dennis Smith Jr. And then you're like, I'm over it. That's old news. I'm like, no, it isn't. It's hours ago. And then the thing that happens to Neil Aquina, like he did that. Now, I would maybe take Canner. But when you tweet as much as Canner does, and your stuff's kind of corny as hell too, it's hard for me. To, like I have a really weird thought of if you're on social media that much, there's no way you can be tough, which is stupid. I know, but I'm just telling you how I feel. Stephen Adams, if you're story. on social media that much, right. you can't be tough. I actually like that as a like a yeah. inverse correlation. It's uh, it makes no sense. It's probably incredibly wrong, stupid, unfair. Just the way I think. But you don't think don't Cantor was in the wrong, right? Uh, not on that one, but Cantor, I mean, Cantor's, 
I don't want to take Canner's side is my point here, okay? I don't want to take Canner because I'm really usually about, is one guy really good and the other guy not, even though one guy can be wrong? Like, I thought LeBron kind of initiated that stuff with Neil Akina. No big deal. But Canner's always got a line. He's always got something to say. And he's usually got something to say from the bench. And he's a guy that can't even play in playoff series against other teams when everybody goes small to begin with. And he's a talented player. Like, I liked him out of, well, not really Kentucky, but fake Kentucky because it was supposed to work out. Didn't. But, yeah, Canner's back in his guy. That's fine. But Canner always has a million things to say, too. So him calling out LeBron for being whatever is like, dude, you do the exact same stuff. Yeah, but he's backing up his teammate. And to me, that's the end of the story. He's there for Nilakina. And what his points per game average is or his history in the playoffs versus LeBron James, these are all, these have nothing to do with anything. I'm not one of these guys that believes, and I don't think you are either, by the way, because you're a great player, you're somehow above reproach or criticism, and no one should ever step up yeah, to you. Yeah, never, you're never allowed to be challenged. That's fair. Like right. when Canner steps to LeBron James, it's not about their, their, their basketball play at that point. It's about Canner having his teammates back, a teammate who's a rookie that LeBron has now taken not one, but two shots at. One through the press, the second on the court. Imagine if Canner cracked him and got him good. Just the public hit. Again, you know, like you have a buddy that's in your group that's kind of the tough guy in your group, and then he's just not, he's yapping, and, and then just the guy that you'd never expected cracks him really good. And then everybody's kind of like, man, Ted got, he just kind of got it handed to him by that little guy. Just completely like, takes the shine off of him. Yeah. And now within the group, guys start calling Ted out a little bit more, <laughs> and Ted calls shotgun, and you don't respect it. You know, and Ted's like, I want to eat here. And you're like, oh, I'll ever after you lost that we fight. Can go, we yeah. wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, you're not really, maybe you're not all that, Ted. I wonder if Nike would go to LeBron and be like, hey, that new shoe, we're going we're gonna to delay that release. Ennis Canner knocked you out in the game. That would be the worst. That would be the worst. Saruti, you're dying over there. I will say this about my theory. I know there are at least two full teams that do not respect him like LeBron. And that's the Warriors and the Celtics. Right? Well, Draymond's buddies with LeBron's. So you can't say the whole team, right? Uh, you think the Draymond stuff's fake? Yeah, but the Warriors stuff is more about being competitors. Yeah, I don't, but I don't think they respect LeBron. I think they think. Oh, come on. They have to respect. I mean, mm. he's. What are you talking about? I don't about? think they like that, dude. Especially because of all that stuff, the Steph stuff, the Halloween party. No way. Oh, I'm not saying they have to like him, but to say they don't respect him. Mm. Imagine if Canner got him. What would we be doing today? Three hours. You know, LeBron, next time, team's on the road trip. When would football come in the show? Shumpert would say, like, hey, I don't know if I want to go there, LeBron. I don't know if I want to leave early on the bus. I don't think other guys around the league would be like, man, I'm so happy he did that. Oh, of course. They I wanted to do that yeah. for so long. When you're the number one guy for this long, I mean, people are going to root against you. That's the way life works. The Ryan Rossillo Show. Talking about LeBron's night at the Garden and... Uh, it's one of those games, one of those things you just wish you could be a part of because I'm telling you right now, you can make all the Knicks jokes you want, but going to that place for a game is still awesome for basketball, even though, you know, I have all these Boston friends that always go, I oh, the Mecca and the world's good. You know, what is it, like 72? You go, yeah, okay, but, you know, go to a game there. Go to a game there where the, the garden is rocking and, you know, they're more into their Knicks because they're just at least competitive. With Will Kane today, the Rosillo Show on ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, more independent agents sell Progressive Insurance than any other brand. Find an agent at Progressive.com. Now, that's Progressive. So we'll talk with Windhorst about that and some other NBA stuff. And we're going to try to guess the playoff committee rankings at the top of next hour. So a lot of cool stuff. And Embiid was awesome. And we may even need a soccer minute or two. The Rosillo Show, your home for international soccer on Italy not being in the World Cup. You know, we thought Saruti was kind of like secretly kind of, 
Although he's a big U.S. men's national team guy, so he's not too terribly Euro millennial that he would actually root against the United States in international play. Mm-hmm. He's bordering on that. Like he's the guy that roots for Sweden in the Winter Olympics. He. You know he's not sitting at his chair. He isn't. So none of this is fair. It's, it's not fair, and he takes huge exception. I have a theory. I want to spend a few minutes on it. Okay. When Cam Newton got it rolling, it was Cam 2.0. Look out. And then he wasn't good. And I went, why did everybody think everything was fixed? I just don't get it. So I have a new category for quarterbacks, and I believe Cam Newton is the captain. And he was. they put it on the Dolphins. Huge numbers for Cam Newton last night. First team all week to week for quarterbacks. Because every time Cam is really good, especially the primetime theory game like last night, all you guys who do what I do can't help yourself. It's like, man, Cam is, look out. Look out for Cam Newton. And if he had played like he had against the Eagles on that Thursday nighter, what, a month ago, and he was terrible, and it goes, ah, this Cam guy, he's never going to figure it out. The variance on him, good Cam, bad Cam, is about as wide as any quarterback, and I think there's maybe a handful of guys in the league that belong to that group. Okay, let's name them. Kirk Cousins. Is he second team all week to week? Let's say there's five first teamers and Cam's the captain. At the same position? Yeah. Well, you know, I, yes. Technically, the way this normally would work is there'd be a center forward and a guard or an offensive lineman, all pro and all that. I'm just trying to name five quarterbacks that fall into this group. Okay. I don't even know if I can get to five. Kirk is week to week, huh? Up, down? You don't think so? I think that Kirk is inconsistent, but not as much as my next nominee. <laughs> okay. Jameis is first team all week to week. Jameis' first team Is he all, good enough? Is he ever good enough now this year, though, that you think... He might be first team all series to series. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll allow, I'll allow the Cam Newton one. What do you mean, the Jameis one? Yeah, I meant Jameis. Um, all right, so we got Cam. Here's Cam, by the way, last night. We just wanted to come out and oppose our will. You know, we had an extra day of preparation. Uh, we had a great week of practice. But above all, man, we wanted to come out and play Panther football. That's protecting the football. I threw a, a lackluster ball early on that, that ended up being incomplete. But, you know, for us, coming out each and every play, um, you know, and having that mentality that we want to maximize each and every opportunity that we do get. So if he was bad last night, which very well could have happened, although the Dolphins aren't necessarily a great team, even though still fighting for a spot in the playoffs in the AFC, which is pretty weak in the middle, it would have been, who is this guy? Can you win with him? I mean, you've done your Cam Newton take that I don't think you're going to be off of after a great Monday night game, right? And that is? No, it's the same thing you're saying. You just branded it cuter. I said he's inconsistent. And I think he's also too inconsistent to put together a Super Bowl run, a Super Bowl winning run that requires, what, four to five games in a row of real high-level play. Is Flacco even consistent enough to be like, That's the thing. It, in some ways, being all first team week to week requires that you are stellar on occasion. Yes, that's my point. Right. And Flacco doesn't ever have the high end to get to all first team week to week. The truth of the matter is, I think Kirk is more consistently above average. Like, I don't think Kirk's variance is the Cam and Jameis variance. And I'm just going through the list of quarterbacks looking for that variance. I mean, yeah. Russell is good every week. Yes, golf is too now. Yeah, like Russell's way too good to be in this. Okay, he's, he's too good, and even if the overall numbers aren't great, just throwing him on a TV. You see no, him. I'm just going through golf, the, the the divisions here. I can't I can't put golf on this no. because the high end has been has been more of the quarterback that he's been this year. Um, you know, you, it's not just really good and then a blip here or there. I'm talking. I have no idea who I'm getting every single week. Flacco has been terrible this year. I'll give you one that used to be on this. He used he was he was the former captain of the all week to week, Matt Stafford. 
Stafford's a good one. But I don't I know that he is anymore. No, he's he's too right. He's too consistently above average to great week to week. Flacco's numbers right now, worst QBR he's ever had. Worst quarterback, the passer rating, excuse me. His completion percentage, fine, whatever. He's eight touchdowns, ten picks. Last year, you know, in the, the struggling years that we've had with Flacco, 14 touchdowns, 12 picks. You know, touchdown-interception ratio is still on the positive side. He's actually below. He keeps, I don't even know if people understand how bad Flacco has been. He's not allowed to be on this team because he's never he never has the high-end games anymore. Let me ask you about a few more. Is Eli week to week? When he has a good game, you know what happens. It's just like, well, you know, look, you know, he's won those two Super Bowls, and this is who he can be, and all that stuff. So maybe he's a little bit in there, but I don't know. How about Philip Rivers? Um, I feel like I just feel bad for Rivers every weekend. It's right. different. It's a different critique with him. His high is really high. Yeah, he has some off performances as well. Yeah, but I just I feel like. When I watch Rivers, it's that Johnny Knoxville skit where he's allowed, he's trying to return a punt against the Tennessee football team. And they go, you want to return a punt against like a real special team to kind of come down and kill you? Yeah. That's what I feel like Philip Rivers is doing every week with the Chargers. Love Jackass. Great. Great. Good stuff. In life, there are talkers and there are doers. Sometimes it's not hard to tell the difference. Mike Bloomberg has spent his life getting big things done. Starting his business out of a one-room office, Mike built a company with 20,000 employees, all with good pay and quality health care. Elected mayor in the aftermath of 9-11, Mike got to work helping rebuild a shaken city, creating nearly 500,000 new jobs and expanding health care for nearly 700,000 New Yorkers. Now, there's a clear choice. Do you want a debater or a doer? Someone who can fix health care, who's done it. A guy who's unafraid of tough challenges, who has a track record creating jobs, who's taken on the NRA and won. That's Mike Bloomberg, a proven leader who can unite our country and get big things done. That's who can beat Trump. That's who we need in the White House. I'm Mike Bloomberg, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. Your home is important. That's why GEICO helps make it easy to save on homeowners insurance. Because home is more than just a place. Home is where you build a giant pillow fort in your living room. And when people ask why you have a pillow fort in your living room, you say it's for your dog. And when they ask, well, what kind? You say, uh, chocolate lab. And we have a web of lies that's almost as intricate as the crown molding in Fort Pillow. The GEICO Insurance Agency could help protect the pillow soft fortress you call home. Call GEICO and see how easy it is to switch and save on homeowners insurance. Embiid and the Sixers, especially Embiid, just humiliating the Clippers' front line last night. I mean, that was special if you stayed up late enough on the East Coast. Don't slight Robert Covington. No, Covington. When they go Sarich, Covington, Simmons, and you're going, this team is huge. And all these guys move incredibly well. So we'll see if they keep this rolling. I want to do an Embiid question. Brian Windhorst with us now. Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Pennzoil Synthetics, taking synthetic motor oil performance to a whole new level. Make the switch to Pennzoil Synthetics today with Will Kane on the Rosillo Show. Okay, Brian, I want to ask you, it may be just I'll, I'll throw some things out here in LeBron. Uh, we know he's the guy, okay? And we know that he gets involved in some stuff, but he also then has this thing where it's like if he starts something, then he kind of wants to shut it down. And we all understand, like, it's kind of his rules when you're this great. But when you look at last night's interaction, we had this conversation to start the show. I can understand other competitors not loving LeBron, but what do you think his approval rating is among other players in the league? Well, one of the things that we're seeing is this young generation of players, last two, three years especially, these guys grew up 
with LeBron as the dom as a dominating player in the league. The Kobe generation has been in the league for a while. We see guys like Kyrie, DeMar DeRozan, and other guys who grew up really worshiping Kyrie. But you see a guy like Kobe. Lonzo Ball, who's from Los Angeles, um, where his whole childhood Kobe dominated, who looks at you and says, my favorite player was LeBron James. And so as that has happened and as his time in the league has grown, his respect amongst the players has as well. And, you know, last night, regardless of what it means in the long term for the Cavs, because they've got some long-term challenges, he played defensive center on a seven-foot-three guy down the stretch, played excellent, and then at the other end of the court had seven assists as offensive point guard. In the history of the game, we're talking about two or three guys that could have ever had a performance like that where they play defensive center and offensive point guard. And ultimately, that's going to be his legacy. There's almost been nobody who's had this skill set. Uh, if you want to count championships, you're going to count them. Then you're going to go with Jordan or Kobe. And, and if that's what you want your baseline to be, then that's fine. But if you look at the way the guy plays and the way he's able to do these things, he's really um, you know, a history-making player. And I think a lot of people who are in the league now grew up with him as that type of player. That's interesting. Who did you idolize when you were growing up? Let me ask you this, and this is a question I think, Ryan, that you and Saruti did on your ba- in your basketball-only pod. Brian, who do you think five years from now will be the best player in the NBA? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think Carl Towns has, has a chance. Um, uh, you know, there's a couple of guys who need to stay healthy to have a chance. You know, five years from now, Steph Curry's still going to be able to make a three. So, you know, it still theoretically could be Steph Curry. Um, Kevin Durant has a chance to be the all-time leading scorer in history. But I'll tell you this. Ben Simmons is a tremendous player. He is one of the most singularly gifted players we've seen come into the league in the last six or seven years. Um, Guys, I think he might have a chance, if he stays healthy, to be one of the best rebounding guards in the history of the game based on some of the stuff that I'm seeing. And the answer in five years might be Ben Simmons because he's got the kind of talent and the kind of size where he's going to be able to take control of games. And that's one of the things when you look at a guy like Giannis Atenacumpo, who could be in this conversation as well. Giannis has the size and the ability to be undefensible. And when you have that kind of ability to be undefensible and you can win a game by yourself like LeBron does, that puts you in the conversation. And so those are the kind of guys, and Durant's in that category too, LeBron, you have to have the size to do it. And that's why I look at Simmons and Atenacumpo as having that type of potential. Did you catch, I don't know what your watching plan were or where you were at, did you catch any of Embiid last night against the Clippers? Of course. My okay. God. All right, so off of the Simmons thing, when I look at Embiid, how humiliating is that for guy? I mean, forget Willie Green trying to take him down, but DeAndre Jordan just having to give up, and he's staring down Blake. I mean, it's one thing to talk it, but he backed it up every single time and made a bunch of vets look like a guy look like guys that have never played defense before. And the key is is that he knows he can do it. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of like what we've been waiting for for Giannis. We're seeing it a little bit with Giannis, but you know, LeBron had that moment in the two thousand seven conference final where he realized that the other team couldn't stop him Giannis is having that awakening right now I'm still waiting for him to have what I call the matrix moment where you know where you know Neo just says no I'm I'm winning this game 
Embiid is ahead of his time in that. And some of it is just his personality because he likes to run smack, but he knows when his, when his opponents can't handle him. He courts it. He loves uh, going up against Andre Drummond. He wants to embarrass him. He wants to embarrass Hassan Whiteside. He wants to embarrass DeAndre Jordan. That type of personality combined with the type of talent he has is the recipe for what a great player is. Kobe knew at a certain point in his career he couldn't be defended. Other players don't have it. Like Andrew Wiggins has the ability to do that a little bit, but he doesn't have the personality. You look at Embiid, he's got it. And that's one of the things that, my goodness, if he stays healthy, because of that killer attitude, he's got the whole package. But Okay, Brian, then then how far will this recipe that the Sixers have take them in the short term? I'm just curious with Simmons and Embiid and Saric and, I don't know, I guess Covington as well. What's the ceiling for the Sixers this year? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, you know, you're talking about guys who are going to be totally um, in new territory. I mean, they've never even played a, uh, a meaningful game after the All-Star break. Maybe meaningful to them, but meaningful to the standings. The other thing is, teams are going to start game planning for them. Like, you know, already Ben Simmons is having some issues where people don't respect his outside shot. They're going to have to go through some of that. And they also need in my mind, you know, they're extremely upwardly mobile because this summer they're going to have cap space. Now we have to see, they're going to sign Robert Covington to a contract extension in the next week here. And they've got MB's contract that they agreed to him coming online next year. But the way they structure their team, giving out almost $40 million in one year contracts, they potentially could be a free agent player. So to me, whatever they are this year, whatever they accomplish, if they're a playoff team, you know, if, they get, if they're one and done or whatever, they're, they, we're going to see them hit their stride next year because they're going to be a player again in free agency this summer. Last one here, and we're talking to Brian Windhorst. I can't believe the Celtics are playing defense at this level. Uh, it doesn't happen with young teams. I know what the numbers all are. What do you see out of Boston realistically, you know, say at the end of the year as a defensive team? They remind me of the Spurs right now, Ryan, because 1 through 15, whoever they put in there does his job. Their defensive discipline is phenomenal. They're bringing in rookies, Daniel Tice, um, Semi uh, Ojelie. Yeah, Semi Ojelie is getting minutes as a second rounder on the number one seed in the East. And, ex- and excelling yeah. and doing his job. And, you know, uh, last year, you know, they had two perimeter defenders in Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley that they weren't able to be great system players. I, you know, Isaiah is limited because of his size, and Avery Bradley is an elite-level uh, on-ball defender. But if you talk to scouts and the numbers back this up, he's not the greatest system defender. They right now, whoever they put in the game, Kyrie Irving Okay, but can I, can I just interrupt you? Awesome. How is Kyrie playing defense after seeing like somebody he couldn't be bothered to care at times for seven years in Cleveland? How is that happening? Well, let's just, when it comes to Kyrie, it's in, we're in November right now. Let's just see where we are in March. Um, but right now, when I watch them, like I watched them uh, on Sunday, Every single player that they put in the game knew against Toronto knew exactly where to be. When one guy moved, the other guy moved. And we're talking about 19- and 20-year-olds and, and other young guys. Typically, 
the young teams don't know how to defend. And this is why Brad Stevens is so damn impressive. And like with Greg Popovich, he doesn't waste time. If he puts a player out there because he's got the, the first two or three guys in front of him injured, that guy is expected and held accountable to, 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 to finding the role and finishing within the system. I am extraordinarily impressed at the Celtics' defensive discipline. It is, and it is San Antonio Spurs' level. Now, we're in November. Let's see where it is in March. You would think that it would get better. But with Kyrie, he doesn't have a history of doing this the whole year. So let's see. But they are so much better defensively this year because they have five guys who play the system at all times. They were a bottom 10 defensive team last year. They relied on Isaiah's scoring to carry them in games. Right now, they're the best defensive team going, and it's because of their system, not because they have a great shot blocker or a great perimeter uh, you know, pressure player. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. The Ryan Rosillo Show. Rosillo. Week three, college football rankings. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. We've done a pretty good job so far predicting these week to week and in order. A little bit more of a shakeup. Probably comes down to what they do with Miami, how they still look at Oklahoma, what do you do with Wisconsin, how far do you move up Auburn, what do you do with Georgia, who is your number one. You want to go first? Yes. And go. just to clarify the rules so I know that This is I what am, you think they're doing tonight. Not what I think should yes. happen. Yeah. Number one, Bama. Number two, Clemson. Number three, Oklahoma. Number four, Miami. Let me keep going. Number, yeah. Well, I think they'll have number five, Wisconsin, number six, Auburn. All right. I think we differ here. Hmm. I have it differently. I got Bama one. What I can't figure out is how will they look at Miami's back-to-back weeks versus other teams that have a loss? Like it's one thing when Miami hasn't played anybody and they're undefeated, and they've been screwing around for a month with lesser opponents and they're these close games. Like You could hold them back. You could knock them for it. And they did that, and now you're going to keep a one-loss team in front of them. Now that they've, and they, you know, look, they had Notre Dame as a top four team. So if the committee thought that of Notre Dame going into the weekend, then they're really going to like that win a lot. So I actually do have Miami too. You don't see it that way. You think that so, what the collective top eleven wins for Oklahoma? They have three of them. What Ohio State, Oklahoma State, TCU this weekend that even with the loss, that's still good enough in the committee's eyes to keep them ahead of undefeated Miami. Let me tell you two things. Number one, on the same weekend that Miami destroys Notre Dame, TCU is beaten soundly by Oklahoma. So TCU goes into the weekend ranked number six and is beaten by Oklahoma. So Oklahoma's adding that to their resume. They're not staying stagnant. So they're ahead of Miami. They add also a top ten win as Miami adds a top three win. And here's the second point I wanted to make. You know what? Honestly, if I'm being really honest as I wrote these down, I forget that Miami's undefeated and these other two have one loss. And the reason I tell you that is I think I'm not alone. I think what we start doing is counting up quality wins and those losses that were earlier in the season start to recede from your memory. Now they're in a room and they're having these debates and somebody's going to bring up, hey, 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 uh, Syracuse? Anyone? You know, and that's going to happen. But I think what you start doing is going, well, who they've beaten, who they've beaten. And for Clemson, Oklahoma, those answers are still better than Miami. See, this is what I, I do like this exercise in that I like that somebody's going to go, you know what? If we're doing this about the four best teams, they're undefeated. They get a loss, whatever. I think the team with one loss is better and I'm putting them higher. I'm totally okay with it. I actually like that way of thinking. But 
if you're Miami and this thing's it's just a different conversation now after these two weeks, and they weren't close games. They were dismantlings of two teams that they've had in, what, their top 13 and a team they had at number three. Like They housed Notre Dame, housed them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why Auburn is going to be in the top six, even with those two losses, because if the committee spent two weeks telling us Georgia's number one and then Auburn dismantles them, that's them going, okay, you have to understand, like, how does the committee see the team? How... What kind of impression has that team made on them to this point? So you know, maybe you're right. Maybe they have Oklahoma. Maybe they still have Clemson there, and they're still going, we're sorry, it's about the four best teams, and we think they're better, and that's how we're going to seed this thing. There's no way Miami's out of the top four. I don't think so. No way. There's no way, because then you're talking about trying to put Wisconsin ahead of them. So I have Bama 1, Miami 2, Oklahoma 3, Clemson 4. That's what I think the committee will do. Wisconsin 5 and 6. What do you do with Wisconsin now? I have I have them at 5 as well. And I have Auburn at six. But here's what's funny. This is what I clarified for you at the beginning of this. How are we doing it? We're doing it like I think the committee is thinking or what I'm thinking. Because I'll tell you this right now. I think Auburn is better than sixth. I think head-to-head, if you're asking me who's the better team, and I'm not supposed to pay attention to how many losses they have, I think Auburn beats Wisconsin. I think Auburn beats Miami. But don't you at some point, like that's the separation between best team and then, okay, the losses have to mean something yeah yeah yeah, you know, yeah. this is kind I'm of the old ohio state thing look i'm a, you and i've had this conversation i'm a deserves it guy i'm a resume guy over a who's better guy because who better on who's better you know we had these conversations with booger we have them several times a week honestly in the end of all of the i've watched the games i've seen all season i'm taking body of work in it's really your subjective analysis of who's better yeah i'm sure there's People right now, if you said Ohio State, Miami, neutral field, I bet you 80% of the people would tell you they take Ohio State. I bet you Vegas would have Ohio State favored over Miami. But you lost twice. You mm-hmm. got destroyed at home against the Sooners, and you went to Iowa and got dump trucked by a team that couldn't even get 100 total yards of offense against Wisconsin, and they put up 55 on you at Kinnick. So, yeah, I can keep playing the game. of like, man, look at all those defensive linemen who are going to be in the NFL. And JT Barrett was a Heisman candidate for like six days. And look at all the running backs. And this is awesome. And you have two nasty marks. And I, look, Oklahoma's really good. The Iowa loss is bad. I mean, Iowa's all right. They're okay. But they were terrible against Wisconsin. So there has to be some sort of line where you go, I know how good I think you can be, mm-hmm. but I can't just let you walk into the top four. I can't just keep you up there. I can't keep you ahead of Wisconsin. I don't know why Ohio State's ahead of Notre Dame in both the coaches and the AP, and they probably will be in the rankings tonight. How is Ohio State with their losses to Oklahoma and Iowa ahead of a Notre Dame team that'll have losses to what was number one through most of the season and what'll be a top four team this this tonight? I have no idea. I can't answer that. But everybody will have it because everybody falls back in love with Ohio State the same way they fall back in love with these other teams. I mean, it's not. It's very obvious how this works. The argument will be that Notre Dame got destroyed, but didn't Ohio State get destroyed as well? Only instead of Miami, yeah, and it, Miami it was by Iowa. Right, and it's not like Ohio State's second loss was, was in September. It was I mean, We were just talking about it getting beat right. last week. Right. So, I don't know. All right, I'm uh, locked out of the system here. So I was trying to play a Herb Street thing. Everything froze up. How's that work? You know what's going on right now at my gym? You guys care about this story? There's still yeah. a show on ESPN Radio. My gym is being run by 22-year-old me. The cable is off. And everybody's afraid of the towels. <laughs> Why are they afraid of the towels? They haven't been washed? Is that what you're saying? It's just nobody wants to use them. Guys get cut. They're just, they're hard. They get cut by the towels? The, the towels are so rough now 
that if you if you if you're too aggressive with just drying yourself off, you're, you're gonna scratched up. Yeah, you're gonna get cut open. <laughs> and then I went to put a game on Sunday. I go, what's going on? They're like, the cable's off. I go, who's running this? I'm gonna net leave names out because last time I did that, people got upset. As long as we're just clearing the decks here, yeah. can I ask you a question as well? Sure. Explain this to me. So I'm reading about Tyron Smith, left tackle for the Dallas Cowboys. He's out, right? Why is he out? He has a groin injury. Why, when you have a groin injury, are you nursing a groin injury? You don't nurse a shoulder. You don't nurse a knee. You rehab a knee. You rehab a shoulder. But when it comes to the groin, you nurse a groin injury. Never thought about it that way. Explain it to me. My first guess would be that there's more, I don't know, it's a different kind of treatment, a lot of massaging. Isn't it a little uncomfortable when you read he's nursing a groin injury? I'm actually still okay with it. You've never heard anybody nursing a shoulder? Mm, I think you're rehabbing a shoulder. I bet I can Google right now nursing a shoulder injury and it'll something will come up. It's like some AP copy from the last 24 hours? Yeah, I think <laughs> I can find it. That's a dare. I've got that electricity charge inside Energy like the lightning strike Take one spark and I will ignite Never stopping, I won't stand by Now that Human Resources Director Ryan Lee has Kronos for HR, payroll, talent and time He's really on top of his game He even has his own hype song I'm the best beyond belief I got strength and got the speed Entire Workforce Complete with different hours, skill sets, and pay grades. No, nobody catching up. They're not fast or strong enough. I got that electricity charging inside. Take one spot, yeah. I'm attracting and engaging the best people every step of the way. Never stopping, I won't stand by. Kronos, HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support them. Learn more at Kronos.com slash HR Swagger. Never stopping, I won't stand by. Go first. Do it. New England, number one. Get some. Philadelphia, number two. Pittsburgh, number three. New Orleans, number four. L.A. Rams, number five. New England, number one. New Orleans, number two. Get some. Philadelphia, number three. Pittsburgh, number four. Los Angeles Rams, number five. Same teams, different order. Look at that. You want to know who has the number one point differential in the AFC? In the AFC? Yeah. You don't like when I do this to you. And it wasn't really to you. It's obviously very interesting if I brought it up. Uh, uh, Yes, the answer is I do want to know. Jacksonville, by a wide margin. Jacksonville is plus 92 in point differential. Let me tell you something. I will not be taking Jacksonville. You watched the last two minutes, and I know you did. Of that Jacksonville-San Diego game, you will not be betting on Jacksonville. Because they have those blowouts against the Texans, that weird Steelers game when Ben had a million picks, and then the blowout against the Colts. But yeah, we don't have Jacksonville in there. Both of us don't have Kansas City in the top five. So is that thing over now? No, I don't even feel weird about that. I feel a little weird. I feel like we should have done it. All right, so we got the same teams there. Bottom three, Browns. Browns. (laughs) Niners, congrats on the win, but you know, and Giants. And Giants. Colts, you love this Jacoby Brissett deal. Ask Lewis Riddick about him. Giants, by the way, we gotta have, reorder those. It's Browns, Giants, Niners. Okay, yeah, that's right. Head to head. Yeah, we got a head to head here. Head to head. You're right. 
just like the college football polls. There are some stories that you just have to hear to believe. Season 2 of the acclaimed 30 for 30 podcast series is now available on the ESPN app and Apple Podcast. Listen today on the ESPN app or Apple Podcast. Jerry Jones, headline on .com, saying, won't stop fighting owners in Roger Goodell talks. He went on uh, 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, as he does every Tuesday, and he said, man, you know, what's the deal? The quote here was great. He served, meaning Goodell, about 60%, roughly 65% of this contract. He, goes, he has 18 months left on there. We've got all the time in the world to evaluate what we're doing. We've got all the time in the world to extend him. It's a really solid point. It kind of is. I've always wondered as I've read about this story, I'd be like, why is there the urgency to do this? Wouldn't it be great? Hey, Will, you got two years left, but we just want to lock in years 2020 through 23. Generally, when that's done, it's because they know there's a big market waiting out there to swoop him up if he ever hits free agency, right? You see it in the NBA. You see it in professional sports. You see it in our industry. We're going to negotiate you out of this contract a little bit ahead of time because we don't want you hitting the open market where there could be multiple suitors driving up your price. Who's who's waiting for Roger Goodell to go free? When you put it that way, Will, if you want to play like the real hard game here, mm-hmm. if, if you were on the other side, you go, hey, man, we paid you 30. We even hit, we even paid you forty six million in one year, and now you want fifty. Where are you making ten? Besides here, where's Roger Goodell making ten million a year? Besides being commissioner of the NFL, I don't know. And then in his rebuttal, let me be Roger Goodell's advocate here for a minute. Would be, you're right, Rye. Um, try to be more professional. We don't have. A competing offer that's rising to the level of yours. But I just wonder, is this extra $30 million worth the headache of replacing me? Hmm? Hmm? You know what's gone? You know what you don't have if I'm not here? A buffer. A shield. Ah, we got plenty of guys. <laughs> I couldn't even take myself seriously <laughs> on that argument. As I was doing, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got an extra 30 to find that? There is a lot of stuff that happens in business, specifically with salaries, and you'll hear stuff about this. And kids, you know, one day you'll hear about it too. Where you go, how does that work? Wait a minute, he just he just gets paid, or huh? Like, yeah, that's kind of what those guys make. You go, wait a minute, what? And that's kind of what this is. It's, wait a minute, you just yeah, but it's the commissioner. And just you just kind of pay the commissioner that much money. Do you know the best argument I heard for the rate? The, let's put it this way: the range that he's in, um, the fifty million a year range. Or 40 to 50. Well, let's go. Yeah. Okay. All right. So demand. 30 to 50. Okay. All right. Look at it this way. The, the, the NFL is up to $17 billion in gross revenues. They are at about an $8 billion margin. That's spitting off $250 million to each franchise. These are ballpark figures. Is that worth a million dollars from each team? If they are sharing a CEO that spins off a business of $250 million to each of them, is it worth each of them to spend a million dollars on that cash flow? When you put it that way, the answer is emphatically yes. But what I would say, if I were on the other side, I'd go, this is really about live rights being worth what they're worth. Not every conference commissioner is a genius. Not every single commissioner of every single sports entity has all of a sudden become incredibly smart at the same time. It's the real estate analogy. You weren't a great real estate agent in 2006. Just a lot of people were getting approved, man. You weren't better at it. 
And so that would be, if I were on the owner's side of this, if I were Jerry Jones, that would be... And I'm not really... I think Goodell takes too much heat for a lot of stuff. His popularity is so low that people almost make it a sport to find new ways to criticize him. And he, like, I'm not sitting here telling you he hasn't made any mistakes, but I'm not saying this is, oh, he's overpaid and all these different things. But why is it if revenue is so great because of him being in charge, how come there's never any stories leaked about this great, insightful, incredibly savvy business thing that he has done? I, I never read any of those stories. How about Thursday Night Football? I came up with that in college in 1996. <laughs> you know, I got an idea. I want you to just walk with me here for a second. We got Monday night. Yeah. We got Sunday night. Stay with me. What I'm thinking? Thursday night. Yeah. What if somebody comes out with six-minute abs? No, man. <laughs> There's not Seven. football. That's a billion dollars, by the way. That's a billion dollars in gross. You know what? Honestly, if they, if they can't come up with that stuff themselves, then they they deserve to pay him fifty million a year. If they, if they're if they're going, oh man, he can't. But then he then he said Thursday football. Yeah, let's Blue pay him. Lines. Yeah, all right. You know what? Honestly, pay him then. Good. Because if, if you couldn't have think think of that stuff on your like that's silly. Going, oh, you know, division. We threw in a wild card. Like all we do is expand stuff. You know. Wednesday night. That's the next commissioner's gig. And why not Tuesday mornings? The Ryan Rossillo Show. Rossillo. You think LeBron's the most popular superstar among his peers? Because I think there are a lot of people rooting for him to get... Now, see, the thing is, is you, you may love your friend, but you wouldn't mind him getting, getting punched in the face every now and then. Like I'm just trying to think of what today would be like if Kander just said, you know what, I'm actually punching you. I'm punching you, for real. And then what happens? Do you think LeBron has the highest approval rating of any of the superstars by his fellow peers? No. It's the lowest. Give me the superstar category. How many guys are in this class? This would be Durant. Fun. Okay. Okay. Who's more popular among among the peers? Approval rating yeah. among these guys. Okay. Right. Durant or LeBron? LeBron. No doubt. Total agreement. Okay. Uh, James Harden or LeBron? Harden. Why? I think we're getting into the territory here. Of what, what, yeah, I don't think. Harden doesn't have as much of a target on his back, maybe. Because there's also some competitive jealousy with this whole thing, too, if we're being... You know what? I, and, and I can't blame LeBron for this, but just Harden isn't mixed up in all the soap opera. You know, I, I understand every time uh, LeBron makes an Instagram post or does whatever, we, we indulge it, and there's a first-take special on it. And it's not that way for James Harden. But he also just doesn't seem to chase it quite the same way as well. No, but it may just be because it's at that tier. I mean, that's that's the thing. All right, so Steph or LeBron? That's a good one. I think that one's easy. That one's the easiest one yet. LeBron? Way higher approval rating than Curry. Curry is the most dissed by his Pierce. professional colleagues as any superstar I've ever seen. Okay, hold on, hold on. Curry or Durant? Uh, I think people still like Durant more, even though there's so many people that don't like Durant because he went to the Warriors. I think of all the top guys, if we're going LeBron... If you're going Durant, you're going Westbrook, Harden, Curry, you know Kawhi in that list. Curry has the least of least. Uh, I let me just put it this way: the lowest approval rating among those guys. I think you're. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. But the entire premise is, and this is one that Rudy banked it on earlier: LeBron's is lower than you would think. What do you think, Rudy? We floated around like, is it above or around fifty percent? I think it maybe would be just under, but I think there are a lot of people. Although Windhorse kind of 
debunked my theory by saying like the younger group grew up idolizing him. So I guess maybe that's not as accurate as it, as it could be. But I feel like the Enos Kansas of the world, the Warriors for sure, Kyrie, a lot of the Celtics just are don't think he's kind of corny. I think he's fake, fake tough guy. And I'm not saying I believe that or think that, but I think that's what some of the guys because like. Otherwise, like you, who gets who gets in Jordan's face? Like who would have gotten Jordan's face like that? Although, would Jordan have done that to a rookie? I don't know. I don't know. I think I think Cantor is completely in the right. Whether or not it's LeBron or whether or not it's Jordan or whether or not it's anybody else, what he did was very simple. He took up for a teammate. He got the back of a teammate. I actually don't even think it was LeBron focused. I don't think it was pointed at LeBron. I think it could have been anyone, and that's why I respect what Cantor did. It's like I'm not worried about what your usage rate, efficiency, PER points per game are compared to mine. What I'm worried about is you're in my teammate's face a day after dissing him in the media. I'm here for him. Isn't yes. that kind of an insecure move, though? Like, what are you doing? Who LeBron? LeBron? Yeah. To the Nilakina thing? Yeah, Nilakina and like with Cantor. Here's the thing. Like, you can mess with Nilakina if you want, but then to go, well, hey, I'm not doing anything. And it's like, well, what are you, you know, you guys, you are like, no, man, you, you kind of like got in his way and you were proving a point. And that's fine. Like, I don't care if you're trying to be a bully out there. I don't care if you're trying to get in this young kid's head. But it's not, this isn't completely unprovoked, man. Oh, you're. You know what, he's doing the Draymond thing a little bit, but in a more subtle way, which will Draymond will do something to someone and then go, what, what, me? Yeah, And right. act like, what are you guys all pointing to me for? LeBron's doing that, but in the media sense. Draymond does it with the refs. I feel like I would have liked it more if it wasn't Canner, though, because I feel like Canner's a super active social media guy, and you go, you're probably going to be on the bench in a close game. That doesn't matter. <laughs> it does to me, and it's really not cool. I'm wrong to think that way. The Ryan Rosillo Show. Rosillo. Hey, what's up? It's Rudy. Rosillo, Will, and myself uh, got the chance to catch up with NBC Sports soccer commentator Kyle Martino earlier today. He's running for the presidency of U.S. Soccer. And as you know, Rosillo Show is obviously your home for soccer coverage. What's up? Here's some of the conversation we have with Kyle. Okay, Kyle, I think as a lot of people know, uh, it was a change of heart for you going after this presidency. What made you change your mind? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I initially did that article uh, with Leander Alphabet because I wanted to accomplish two things. One, I wanted to point to what is a ridiculous barrier to entry. The fact that it's a volunteer unpaid position, yet you are running a $150 million company and the biggest sports market in the world trying to grow the greatest sport in the world, a, an enormous undertaking. It just on paper doesn't make sense. But then when you look at the, the nuance of that decision, it keeps credible candidates from coming forward. It, it keeps viable candidates from throwing themselves at the soccer problem and saying, I'm willing to put my time, my effort, my network towards this problem and, and put U.S. soccer on the right track. So, you know, I, I, I was sitting there waiting for so many people to come forward, people I respect and people I think could do a great job. You know, one of them publicly, I mentioned uh, a fellow ESPN colleague of your guys, Julie Foudy. And, and, and what I was hearing, what she said publicly and behind the scenes is people can't afford to do this job. And it's just, why would you, why would you create that barrier to entry um, and, and, and leave it to independently wealthy individuals or people who have other full-time jobs to, to take such a massive responsibility on? So I wanted to point to that. And not, not because I need the salary, but because Sunil Gulati, if he stays president, should be paid that money. That's accountability. 
you, you need to have that sort of transparency within U.S. soccer. But next, uh, I, in the back channels, was getting phone calls from so many people asking me to get in this race. And I just wanted to make sure I wasn't a distraction moving forward. I wanted to ostensibly get rid of the speculation that I would be getting involved so that this back channel of wonderful soccer people would put their focus on someone else and we could all get together to convince someone worthy of this enormous job to get into the race. And uh, the article did not accomplish that. It actually made my phone ring 10 times more than it was before with people just saying, we need you right now. And I went and sat with my wife in the kitchen until 4 a.m. one night uh, into the early morning, just talking through it. And she saw in my eyes that it's something I had to do. She saw that the kid in me dreamed that one day in this country, soccer would be treated the way it is around the world. And that dream's in jeopardy right now because of poor leadership. And when she gave me the okay, I went to NBC, my other family, and asked for their blessing. And they saw the same thing in my eyes. And that's the reason I changed my mind is because I, I didn't see someone in the field of candidates capable of taking on uh, this enormous job at this point. And I had to leave my dream job and the people I love doing it with to jump into the fray and, and finally step up to put us on the right track. Kyle, what is your sort of three point plan? Your 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 um, how do you execute your dream, as you said, to put U.S. soccer on the same footing that the rest of the world treats U.S. soccer? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I'll get to the three-point plan in a second, but I think we're getting too focused on who should lead U.S. soccer forward, and we're not answering the question, what do we need? You know, we have businessmen that aren't soccer guys. We have soccer guys that people think aren't businessmen. You know, there, there is a wide range of candidates right now, and we have to clearly state what U.S. soccer needs moving forward. And what U.S. soccer needs is someone who can solve the soccer problem. We, we need a soccer visionary because the profits are there. The business is going good. I mean, can we improve that? Absolutely. And should we have a focus on that for sure. But hiring a business guy is much easier than, than, than finding and electing the soccer visionary. So that's what we need moving forward. Uh, my dad worked for IBM for a very long time, and he told me of one of the CEOs that, that he respected when IBM was thriving. The thing he respected the most was that he hired smarter people around him. So the reason I'm the right guy moving forward is because I have the wisdom to identify the problem. I have the, the network to, to get to the experts who can help me solve this problem. I have the courage to tackle these problems, but I have the humility to know I don't have all the answers. Uh, we're coming out of a long tenure of a president who tried to be the expert in every category, but had a serious soccer blind spot. So how I'm going to do it when I'm president, I've, I've uh, three, three, the sort of three pillars of my platform, transparency, equality, and progress. And, and to drill down into each a little bit, transparency is about we need to see how U.S. soccer is being run. It's opaque. And the first thing I do is bring an outside independent firm to look into the ethics of how the organization is being run and are we doing it the right way. The next piece is the, the salary. I already mentioned that. We need to hold our president accountable and it needs to be a 24-7 job. So put someone in that position, and we know that they're not profiting, profiting off the office in any other way. We pay their salary, and they're working for us. And, and lastly, we, we have to make it clear what, what our, our approach has been in the past 
and where we failed. I think we're trying to paper over cracks and hide mistakes. We need to look at them as those mistakes and bring them out in the open. Uh, the equality aspect of this is an easier one, but a, a very passionate one for me. First off, we need to pay our, our women the same that we pay our men. And that means on the field, our World Cup winners and our world-class athletes should be paid like U.S. soccer players, not like women U.S. soccer players. And I've been speaking with a lot of them. Um, when I was little, I dreamed of being Maradona and Mia Hamm. I mean, to me, when you wear the badge, you, you are a U.S. soccer player, and, and we have to give the women the same salary, the same travel, and the same facilities that we give the men. Um, you know, equality as well is about we're a very diverse country, but soccer is a rich white kids game, and we need to change that. And I can say that because I came from an affluent community and had every opportunity to climb the ladder. But if my parents gave me the bill for my soccer education right now, I wouldn't be able to afford it. And many kids are missing out playing in inner cities because they can't afford to get in the system. And when you look at our national team, it's not representative of what our country is made up of. I mean, look at inner cities. You know, 50% of kids are more likely to play basketball than soccer. One of the, one of the reasons is because of price. It's so expensive to play soccer. The other reason is because of lack of facilities. You know, I see a huge surplus that U.S. soccer has, $150 million, and that's an opportunity cost. I see kids not in the system. I see coaches not being paid. I see inner city programs that we could be subsidizing. Um, so, so we need to have a much more diverse group of athletes. We need to cast a wider net. And then lastly, you know, the LGBTQ community, one of my closest friends when I was playing at Columbus was a, an individual named David Testo who came out to tell me he was gay but wouldn't tell anyone else on the team. The locker room's not a safe place for everyone, and, and he didn't feel it was, which is why he only confided me in that. And it affected him as an athlete, but more, more importantly, it affected his happiness as a person. You know, we, we need to through education and, and through empowering people, turn a locker room into a safe place where, where any walk of life comes in there and they're just a teammate. So that's the, that's the, the equality portion of it. And then lastly, progress. This is, this is the, the part that's the most difficult, the soccer problem. Our men are, are failing and our women are being caught up with. Our women are the Brazil, Germany, Spain, Argentina on the women's side. But if you talk to any of the current players or former players, they'll tell you that they're frustrated that other nations are catching up with and surpassing them. We, because of Title IX and other uh, mechanisms, focused on women's sports in our country long before other countries did, which was great. We were the, we were the, the leaders, the vanguards, but, but we've rested on our laurels and our women's team is suffering because of that. And the pipeline up to that team, you know, the next Michelle Akers, Mia Hamm, Abby Wambach, Alex Morgan, you know, the, the, the kids coming behind are not getting the soccer education we need. So at the youth level, we have two problems. It's, it's unaffordable for many. And for those more than happy, like my parents, to pay for a soccer education, the soccer education isn't good enough. And U.S. soccer has to focus on those two problems. Kyle, I want to ask you, it seems like the last two World Cups, it made out of the group stage twice, but now missing this World Cup. How bad is this for the sport going forward? How much does this set us back or does it set us back at all? 
Yeah, it sets us back, it sets us back big time. But you know what? If we change, if, if we use this inflection point as an opportunity to fix what's been wrong for a very long time, qualifying for World Cups and getting out of groups, all of that was papering over cracks because the high watermark for our national team was 2002 before Sunil Gulati took over. The high watermark for our under-17 national team, well, that was Landon Donovan getting the golden ball and and that incredible tournament in, in 1999, I believe. And then at the Olympics for the men, that was, that was uh, the bronze medal that they were able to get before Sunil took over. And for the women, the, the, the magical moment of Brandy Chastain that we all see of her sliding on her knees after that penalty kick. I mean, all of, all of these high watermarks were before Sunil Gulati took over. So the, the soccer side has been stagnant and, and from what we're seeing lately has gone in the wrong direction. So Claudio Reyna, who's a good friend of mine, and, and I was lucky to have him as a teammate for a little bit, he did an interview right after Trinidad and Tobago where he said some hard truths. We're too cocky as a soccer country. We think we have all of the answers. So we need to finally admit we don't. There's no panacea here. But we, we have to ensure that there's never going to be another summer coming up here where we have to sit on the couch and watch a World Cup without our women dominating and without our men even in it. And the most important thing right now to focus on is getting, obviously, the youth development problem fixed. But, but in the short term, we have an opportunity to to land the 2026 World Cup, to bring it back to the States the first time since 1994. If we miss that chance and we're battling, I think the front runner with us is Morocco, who just qualified for the World Cup uh, that we're not going to. If we, if we miss that opportunity, if we fail to do that, then that's going to be more catastrophic than missing out on this World Cup for the men. So one thing I need to do as president is, is work in tandem with Sunil Gulati, who will be on the FIFA Council and on the big committee, and challenge him and push him like I always have when he's making bad decisions, but, but support him in trying to land the, the biggest sporting tournament in the world. Kyle, you mentioned youth development, and I think that's something that with that player should be in peace that Christian Pulisic just came out with. Do you think that that player development is best outside of the United States? So like guys 15, 16, when you know, they're kind of in the prime of where they're being developed, he left, obviously, to go to Borussia Dortmund and, and play in an awesome youth system. Do you think that that is kind of the future or that's what more guys should do? And do you think that's a reason that we potentially have peaked or uh, regressed as a, as a soccer nation? It absolutely is better abroad. And, and we shouldn't be insecure about that. You know, the best academy in the world is La Masia in Barcelona. And another great academy is uh, producing the most professional players is in Ajax, an academy that created remarkable success if you go back to Clivert and Edgar Davids and Dennis Burkamp and all the young players that had that incredible Champions League uh, European performance. Um, you know, people are doing it better than us because they've had a long head start. And by the way, they have the, the cultural advantages where they're not battling for athletes that have a choice between three or four other sports that seem more attractive to them at a young age. So, um, we have challenges here that make it difficult to solve the, the, the youth problem. But listen, we still produced Christian Pulisic. We, we still produced Landon Donovan. We still produced uh, Alex Morgan. We still produced Mia Hamm. So w we can produce great players. We're just not doing it in big numbers. And one of the reasons why is because so many kids are failing to get into the system and so many kids are dropping out of the system. And one of the big reasons is cost. And one of the reasons we're struggling developing players is because the coaching isn't good enough. And we can improve that. Because, by the way, one barrier to entry is the license for a coach to get. I mean, to go get these UEFA licenses and get these badges in an A and B license, it costs a ton of money. And, and a lot of coaches can't afford to get into the system. 
you know, the most licensed coaches in the world in any country won't surprise you is in Spain. So, so we, we need to solve these problems and they're solvable. Um, but it's not mutually exclusive. Listen, Christian Pulisic and other players, the, the opportunity to go to Europe will be there and some should take it, but it's not right for everyone. You know, I look at Eddie Johnson, he went to Fulham and Clint Dempsey went to Fulham. That experience was entirely different for those two players. Clint Dempsey it launched him on a great European career. Eddie Johnson almost ended his soccer career. So it's just about creating an atmosphere here domestically that casts a wide net and services every part of the community, but also every part of the pyramid. You know, there's some kids that just want to play for fun, that just want rec, that just want to have orange slices. There's, by the way, there's some adults that just want that. But, but there are some kids that aspire to greater levels, and I'm one of them. I played rec, I played travel, I played ODP, I played high school, I played college, I went to residency in Florida, I, um, I played pro, I played for the national team, and now I'm on the backside playing amateur and paying 10 bucks to play indoor. So I have seen this entire spectrum, and it's broken at many levels, but we, we can fix it. But it's silly to think we can be Germany or, you know, if you look at what they did after their failure in the Euros, when they completely revamped their system and put a focus on the youth, they forced the Bundesliga, I mean, the DFB, their federation, and the Bundesliga got together. They forced the Bundesliga and their second division to all have, as a mandate, academies to train kids. Uh, and then they threw a few billion dollars at the problem, creating centers of excellence, getting more scouts, getting more coaches. We're not going to be able to throw a few billion dollars at this problem, but we should get together with our strategic partners. And that's sponsors. That's Major League Soccer. That's NASL. That's USL. That's that's U.S. Soccer. We should all get together and pony up and begin to solve our youth soccer problem. Kyle, really impressive stuff, man. Good luck and uh, keep us posted. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Ryan Rossillo Show podcast. You can check out the show live weekdays at 1 Eastern on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and on ESPN News. The Ryan Rossillo Show podcast.